how do I describe this place? You know, when I when I first heard about it, I, all I knew about it was that it was in Japan. I pictured, okay, it's going to be a maybe a house on the ocean, very tasteful. But instead, um, I'm in a uh, this area of Tokyo. They call it Little Korea. It's um, you know, it, it's it's the city. It's it's the heart of the city. It's um, a little bit a little bit grungy around the edges. It's very very quiet. And my host at the museum turned out to actually to be a, a young French woman. Um, I made the appointment. You have to make a reservation you know, months in advance. Uh, that was all by email. Um, so she took me in, and uh, she began to take me through <coughs> through the museum. The, the very first thing you see here. It's a sculpture. It's about nine feet tall. Um, it's called Gretchen's First Experience with the Sun. It's by sculptor Wolfgang Moltke. It's it's really striking. It's metal and glass, mostly metal, and it, it's depicting this woman. It, it's a nude, very very tall, and she's cowering with her with her arms up over her head. Is the sun is just so blinding and she's never experienced anything like this and it's just she's terrified of it this frozen look of pain on her face and, and, and fear but the most significant thing about it is that her left hand is missing it was removed stolen uh more than 30 years ago now um by persons unknown no one ever knew why uh, someone broke into Moltke's studio, took the hand, and made off with it. And, and Moltke, the artist, became obsessed with finding uh, the missing hand, which is about very large and very heavy. Uh, Moltke spent so much of his money, private investigators, following lead after lead as the years went by, and the piece was never released. But the thing is, in the interim, Moltke's reputation as a sculptor grew and grew, and people began to learn that that he had this uh, piece of sculpture that he was had never shown to anyone because the hand was missing, and he, he was obsessed with finding who had done it. It just didn't make any sense. Finally, after about 20 years, he, he gave up, uh, and he sold the sculpture partially to pay off some of his debts from hiring private investigators to find this hand. And the piece, Gretchen's first experience with the sun, was bought by uh, a collector. Now, this man's name was Jed Allen Birch. He, um, he had been a DJ. He had, had a punk rock record label. Uh, he was in his uh, early 40s. About four years after he bought this sculpture, had it transported to London, he died by suicide. Um, and in going through his basement after his death, uh, the police found the hand, found the missing hand. So Jed Allen Birch had, had bought, about 18 years after the hand was stolen, he bought the piece and he based on how, how much dust was on this hand and where it was placed in the basement and hidden away, obviously, the police thought that he'd had it for a long, long time. 
and no one ever found out what the, what the story was. Why did Jed Allen Birch have this hand? Did he did he steal it all those years ago? And then he bought the sculpture, and maybe it had some kind of guilt thing. It was never never figured out. Moltke, the artist, was again cast back into this mystery. And in addition to that, there's a book about it, and and there there are internet forums devoted to whether Jed Allen Birch stole this hand or not, or why he may have done it, or what it meant. There are internet sleuths. So it's sort of a three stories of, of obsession in this one piece. First, the, the search for the hand and, and why it had been stolen, and then maybe Jed Allen Birch himself was obsessed with the piece. And now the public is again drawn in by this, this sculpture, but uh, it is the first thing you see upon, uh, upon going into the, the Kenji Nezu uh, Museum. Can you tell me more about just, you know, when you walk in and you see the sculpture, did you yourself feel anything special or, you know, can you describe, like, how is the room lit? The entire museum is very modestly done. There's not a lot of money. The entire histories of these pieces are explained verbally to you when you go in. There are no uh, tasteful placards on the, on the walls. There's no fancy lighting. But the place does have this strange air of mystery because, after all, the concept is every piece in this museum is related to deep and most often disturbing artistic obsessions. When you go in and you know that everything you see has that obsession theme as its center, you can't help but feel an aura about the place, even though it doesn't seem to. They're not trying for it. Um, It's just there all around you. There's no effect to the place. It's all whatever is there in front of you, presented raw and, for the most part, unexplained until you ask. Devouring the Muse, a study of metals in art. Quote, It was often the poets who spun the narratives that explained the creation of the universe and the place of humans in it. In the painting, Wheat Field with Crows, Vincent van Gogh wanted to build a scene of darkness, of despair, but also of the tough love force of the countryside. The portentous sky is shocking blue gem dark and cuts off abruptly at the heaving, distant green. Crows like bats, heading off down the red veins of the path. Vincent ate paint. Saturn ate his children. Francisco Goya painted directly onto canvas with his fingers. His body imploded in nervy collapse. The self-portrait from 1820 shows the gray and ghostly artist supported by his beloved stalwart physician who holds a glass of liquid in front of him. Self-portrait with Dr. Arietta is the name of the piece. Arietta means rocky place originally derived from Ari, which refers to stone, Spanish or Basque. Basque Arietta means place of oak trees. 
The astrological symbol for Aries is the ram, a fire sign with its horns curling in a spiral or ring. Saturn in Roman mythology is a harvest god, a god of agriculture. But this depiction may only be due to the carrying of a scythe, often interpreted as a tool of the farm. But this is not necessarily so. Scythes are also weapons, as in the beheading of giants and monsters. You see, Saturn, in Greek mythology, is almost the exact opposite of harvest, of yield and renewal. In fact, Saturn destroys his lineage, stretching out on both sides. Saturn ate his children. One of Goya's most studied works is Saturn Devouring His Son. This, one of the Black series, was painted directly onto the walls of his house. A wall of death is a cylinder in which drivers steer a vehicle around the vertical surfaces fast enough to take advantage of centrifugal force. This performance practice has its roots at Coney Island in 1911 and is an evolution of the motor dome. Other classic spiral or ring-shaped amusement park features include the Ferris wheel and the roller coaster inversion. There's a classic radio show murder mystery called Lead Rings on the Merry-Go-Round. As is traditional, the Lead Rings murderer is revealed only at the very end. Every time a murder is discussed on the air, a murder takes place in the studio. Saturn is a gas giant planet. Saturn is known as the jewel of the solar system. This is largely due to its beautiful gaseous rings. Nine side-by-side Earths would almost span its diameter, not including its seven radiant rings. Saturn ate his children. Saturn has 53 known moons, with an additional 29 moons undiscovered. Jackson Pollock's 1950 work titled Number 29 was a drip painting utilizing beads, glass enamel paints, string, and steel. As in many of his works, it contains both simple and sophisticated methods. And the image is limitless, continual without clear definitions of where it begins or ends. Saturn ate his children. Lead poisoning from jewelry happens often, chiefly from rings, in a cruel stroke of beauty and sickness. It's thought that many artists suffered from lead poisoning from the immersive exposure to their paints. Mysterious symptoms, along with their devouring souls and evidence of drinking and ingesting this material, sings through history like a planet's thermal glow. Lead poisoning is called Saturnism. The ism suggests worship. Goya, Van Gogh, Michelangelo. Van Gogh wanted to die by drinking paint and turpentine, therefore was not allowed into his studio during his spells. He stuck his brushes in his mouth. Exodus 32. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your women and your daughters and bring them to me. The painting is this. 
A tan, long-haired Saturn grips a smaller, pale body in his white-knuckled hands. He's on one knee, and his wild eyes roll and gape ahead. There's a panic. There is a fierce. One arm and the head of the body is gone. Red paint blood drips like a dipped cone. Goya did not name the black paintings. The name was assigned by others after his death. talk about uh, on the second floor uh have you heard of the um, uh, filmmaker greta bly avant-garde filmmaker no yeah fairly obscure but uh she lives in uh, austin texas um avant-garde filmmaker one day she was in a thrift store in austin and she she saw a painting there and for whatever reason as happens in life this painting just spoke to her she just felt she needed this painting. It was more than she could afford it. I think it was $30. But she just had to have it. So she bought this painting. Now, what the painting shows is it's just uh, a man and a woman, their heads, very pale, uh, approaching middle age. And in the painting, they're sort of looking past each other. So they don't seem to even really be connected. In the painting, I looked at it for so long, you can't really tell what their relationship is. Is they just seem to be suspended in time and space, and it's minimalism a little bit. It's, it's interesting to look at, but Greta Bly could never find out who painted it. There was no signature. She took it home and she put it on her wall, and she just she felt a connection to it. She began to have dreams about the people in this painting. Uh, in her in her dreams, over the years, these people were always trapped inside the painting staring off past each other, you know, their, their relationship unknown. She began uh, to think about it so much, she even um, put these two painting people into one of her movies in the background in a restaurant. She cast people who looked like them. She would do little things like this over the years. She, she had so many dreams uh, began to haunt her. And this painting just had, had this place in her life she told everyone about it. She just didn't know <laughs> what was going on with this painting. And then one night, uh, this is 1995, she was in her little apartment alone. She was preparing to go to bed. She made some tea. And then she went into her bedroom. And she turned on the light. And sitting there in her bedroom, in two wicker chairs, were the man and woman from the painting. No. Come to life. And she was not dreaming. She stood there in her doorway looking at them. And the man said nothing but looked at her. The woman with black hair with a lot of gray in it turned to her and all she said to Greta Bly, she just said, you have to understand we don't like you. And at that, Greta Blyde, she, um, she backed out of her apartment entirely. She left. Um, she walked down the road to a friend's house, told a friend everything, finally went back, and the people were gone. And they never returned. 
um, she wound up burning the painting. She she destroyed it. Now, how how was this tale told? What at the museum was it? Was there a film or like? No, a... no. This was uh, the uh, the docent, uh, the young docent, uh, Therese. Is her oh. name. She knows all the stories by heart, and uh, it's especially haunting because on the wall in the museum, of course, it's it's a reprodu- reproduction of a photograph that Greta had taken because she burned the original. It makes it extra strange somehow to know that this is not, this is not the real painting that you're looking at. Oh gosh, this makes me think of. Um, oh, I was thinking about this recently. Uh, it's an early memory. Uh, it's a little funny, but um, you know, I'm sure that you know at at this time, what was I six seven? Um, you know, I I know I had since the power of what, you know, and, uh, the worlds that artists can create, um, since the power of them and how they can, how they can draw you in and give you a certain feeling, give you certain emotions and just that they always, um, were much more meaningful and magical than it appeared they could be. Um, I, there's a, there's a movie from 1980. Uh, that my uh, my mother watched a lot, and it was uh, the story is based on a Richard Matheson story because you know what frankly wasn't in this era, <laughs> right? Do you remember? Uh, do you remember somewhere in time? Oh no, I, I, I don't. It's gosh, it's um, it's basically a science fiction love story. You know, it's uh, the picture. That you were describing reminded me of it because of the, because of the trapped nature, of being together but not really you know looking past each other and just not quite connecting and also, um, you know, uh, <laughs> coming back and de- de- declare declaring their um, their um, disapproval of uh, of this woman. Um, anyhow, it's. It's about these two people who are soulmates, right? But they live in different times. And once they kind of become aware of each other's past and future existences, then they try to they try to figure out how they can be together in the same time. And um, the thing I remember most that kind of frightened me was uh, Christopher Reeve's character becomes obsessed with... Uh, photograph of her and he goes through all of these oh, exercises to to kind of will himself back to 1920 you know he just stares and stares at her picture and uh at the end he just sits in a chair looking out a window and he just kind of dies there um just the look on his face is actually very scary. He's really pale, and his eyes are just totally red. I don't think he even blinks anymore, um, and he's just staring off. It's it's intense. It's a it's a weeper for sure. But I I think it has this weird power. Anyhow, the portal was the picture. 
in a way. The ultimate paint-by-numbers guide. One. Find a comfortable and well-lit room in which to paint. The more detailed the kit, the tinier the numbers and spaces may be. It may or may not be the room in which you spread a sheet down on the floor and the two of you sleep on just that, in no need of anything else, with a thin poured blanket and the window open all night for the summer's early sun. Of course, you can take this first step as seriously as you want. It depends on the kind of experience you want to have. It is, of course, up to you. Two, clear a space of anything that should not get wet or dirty. As careful as we think we will be, the paint always seems to find its way onto something other than canvas. This can be a good time to find out what objects are and are not important to you. You will lose lots of them to him. You won't know it right away. Three, get a small cup of water and a few paper towels. You'll need the water for your thirst. We'll explain about the paper towels later. Four, sometimes you'll go running. You won't care. You can take anything, but you're already dying like a star. Stretching a paint-by-number canvas takes a lot of patience. Painting for too many hours on a flat surface makes our necks sore. Spending too many hours painting with an easel hurts our necks and our arms. Five. A paint pod with no number or a gray dot will correspond with the gray or blank area on the canvas. Only open one paint pot at a time. Only count things if it will soothe you or help you. Otherwise, it's best to remain unmeasured. Know that a conclusion drawn may or may not be a solid mass to cling to. See our instructions for how to hang below. Six. There will be signs, and they will be bright, but not as bright as he will make you feel. Bright like a planet, like a neon sign, like an arrowhead quartz in the moon. Like you're in the one place in the world you belong. We suggest that you go from top to the bottom of your canvas. We suggest that you paint toward your dominant hand. In your case, work from left to right as you make your way. We strongly suggest that everyone, no matter the soul, Start with the darker colors first, then go lighter. But this rarely happens. And while we understand it usually goes in complete reverse, backwards, back zipped, we have to tell you that with this path chosen, it must be where the instruction ends. Seven. He slouches with elbows and kindness. The sphere of him turns and the side you know goes to space. Soon he steals, quits, sleeps, dreams on starships and desert sands. He throws a hammer at his friend and lopes away into smoke. Everything changes for you in the basement. It has been bad, very bad, but tonight he wrestles you down and laughs at your loss.
The floor is made of loose stones. You're mesmerized, shocked with his hate. It will drag on a little, for some years, because he once said as soon as he earned forty dollars he would buy a license to marry you at the echoing hall. He won't make it, and you will, and this is many things. It's not the gift you want, but occasionally you prepare the water and the brushes and the tarp. I heard you paint houses, he had said, and you say, yes, I do. At any rate, uh, the name of the museum, uh, Kenji Nezu was uh, an heir to a uh, a glass fortune. Um, But he uh, he had a problematic life uh, back in the the 60s. Um, He has uh, a room upstairs unto himself. When he was uh, only about 20, he began to paint a potato farm a landscape, a very pastoral landscape, um, a little farm in uh, Hokkaido. But he painted it over and over and over and over and over again. He painted the same scene over 600 times. And uh, in one of the rooms of of the museum, each one of these small canvases is arranged as if you're in a record store and you can flip through bins all 600 or so of those paintings, his attempts to get this right are all there uh, in racks. Um, The strange part is there, oh, some of them, there seem to be strange ghosts that he painted on this farm. Um, No one knew knew why he did this. Uh, No one knew why he was even painting this. This one scene, he wasn't really much of an artist, he never even tried. But he was found dead in his bed at age 24. Uh, unknown causes. His, all his money that he was to inherit then went to his sister, and she found him in the museum uh, 20 years later. She, she was a well-known art collector. Kenji Nezu was his name. This is very fascinating. Um, just making me think of all sorts of things. I There's a story that haunts me um, that has some similarities, but um, in, in, the, in the way that the, that the, to understand what's going on, you kind of need to see all of, all of the work, you know, all of the images. Um, it's, the story of kind of how the inner world of the artist can be seen through the work, which, you know, that on the surface it's very obvious, right? Nothing wild or new about that statement. But I think maybe in, in this case, it's just such a unique progression with just so much going on along the way. Anyhow, it's the story of Louis Wayne. Um, he, well, I he'll probably be... Um, more well-known, I think there's a, uh, as they say, handsomely mounted biopic uh, coming out later in the year uh, about him. He was an illustrator, and he loved drawing and painting cats above all things. Uh, Just really all kinds of cats. But what people really responded to uh, was his 
like really spirited anthropomorphizing of these cats. There was just such life in the pictures. You know, some were whimsical and some were actually kind of sinister. Um, some were just like loving renderings of these creatures. But there were all these things the cats were doing, like participating in the bright and dark rules of society. Uh, anyhow, he fell on hard times and um, kind of sunk into poverty and depression. So, um, as you know, anyone did with, with absolutely any sort of <laughs> mental health problem in those days, uh, he went to a mental hospital in London. But while he was there, he continued to draw and paint. And here's where you can really see this progression that's fascinating. It goes, the images go from these recognizable cartoon cats to cats with more sort of fraud and worried or anxious expressions. And then the images started to get very strange, like really psychedelic. Um, and eventually, it was just like kaleidoscope outlines in the vague shape of a cat's head. And then they just went to these sort of wild, vibrating, trippy rainbows almost. I, as I'm talking about this, I, I remember one of the later drawings. Um, it's a pretty simple image of this cat smiling and Underneath the cat in block letters, uh, Wayne had painted, I am happy because everyone loves me. Yeah, you know, it's weird. I think everyone, at some point in your life, you begin to think, am I, am I disturbingly obsessed about, could be anything, could be anything. Um, it's almost funny to think about. I myself had one, I guess, artistic obsession in my life. Uh, much like Ejinezu mysteriously painted that same potato farm over and over and over again when he had no artistic interests or ambitions. I, I once, have you ever done a paint by numbers? Many years ago, I was given one by a friend. And I was bored one rainy day, and I decided, well, I'll, I'll do this thing. It was a, it was a, a, a streetscape, uh, nighttime, kind of like a scene where the Kinchinazu Museum uh, is situated. And I remember that I did all the numbers, one by one, very slowly, methodically. And I became bored with it after a time, and I started to fade. And in the end, I stopped having only to do one more number, all the little regions with that one number that I remember was the number eight. The thing about the number eight regions was that this was, this was the yellow. These were the yellow regions that would finally bring the lamps in the paint by numbers to life. It was the only source of real light. And without me doing the number eight regions in that yellow, it was a dark, very sinister street. But I, 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 don't, I don't know why I didn't finish. And uh, at some point, this paint by numbers was lost in the move where I threw it out, but then the years went by, and I, I sometimes would think about it. And uh, 
I would think about how that painting almost existed, but it didn't. And what I had left behind was the ashes of, of, of darkness, this dark street where no light had ever come because I had not given it that light. All I had to do was paint in those regions. I never did. And at some point over the years, I began to think that what I had done was not just an oversight. There was some sort of subconscious rebellion going on there where I intentionally left that street in darkness. And then after that, it actually began in my mind to seem like I had committed some sort of crime, some kind of sin. Um, but I don't know what against. That um, image of the, the lamps and the yellow lights, um, uh, it makes me think of, you know, the photographer Diane Arbus, who um, had a hard time kind of increasingly over her life. Um, and I feel vulnerable saying that while she was able to move forward and through all of these, these difficulties and obstacles, while, um, you know, a lot of the precious things that she cherished kind of fell away and she was giving away more and more of herself. Um, she confessed at a certain point that her work just wasn't enough anymore. That is very frightening to me. You know, that you can just hit that wall and the work that you love and um, has sustained you and that you saw and spoke to the world with most completely can no longer be stretched out and it can feel you. It can become insignificant. 